0: The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. And yet throughout Scripture, it points back to the Ten Commandments and says things like these laws are better than gold, more precious than gold, sweeter than honey, that the laws of God actually revive our soul. And so our desire is not only to intellectually understand these laws, but to love them as a good gift From a gracious God. The first week, we looked at the three categories of the law being civil, ceremonial, and moral. And we saw that the Ten Commandments are the summary of the moral law. And the three uses of the law are as a muzzle to restrain wickedness in society, as a mirror to show us our sinfulness and need for a Savior, and as a map to guide the life of the Christian that loves the giver of the law. Last week, Chad preached on the First Commandment reminding us that our worship is to be exclusively towards the Lord God, that our worship is an expression of our love towards God, and our worship is a demonstration of trust towards the Lord God. And so today we move on to the second commandment. But we're going to start back in verse 1 of Exodus 20, both to remind us of the context of Israel's salvation, but also that we might remember the laws as we go along and remind ourselves of the first law. So we're going to focus on four through six today, but we're going to start in Exodus 20, verse one. Exodus 20, verse one. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the father on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, as we come to the second commandment today, we pray that your spirit would work in our hearts, that it might refresh our souls. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This past week, I was listening to a sermon by another preacher and he shared a story of how he went over to India to be a part of a pastor's conference, to speak at a pastor's conference. And so he flew over to India, and then he took some form of transportation out into the very rural areas. He got off the bus, and he, he saw people plowing with oxen and things of that sort, and it was almost like being transported back 2,000 years ago. As he walked through the, the village, he noticed all of these shrines that were set up to the various local deities, He went into one of these shrines and there were chicken parts spread throughout the entire shrine, this little shack. And there were legs over here, heads over here, wings over here, and there was blood everywhere. And they sacrificed these chickens in hopes of getting the favor of the local deity, whether it be for their crops or for their health or whatever it might be. And he said these shrines were everywhere. Well, finally, he made it to the pastor's conference. And the pastors were made up of people who used to be witch doctors and things of that sort. And he started to talk to one of the pastor's wives, who used to be Hindu. And she asked him, is this your first time to India? And he said, yes. And then he responded saying, oh, have you ever been to America? And she said, yeah, I've been there one time before. And he's very excited. He said, oh, when are you going to come back and visit us again? And her response was, and I'm going to quote it because I want to make sure I get it right. She said, I don't think I will ever return. I can't stomach the idolatry. What a stunning statement from a woman that is surrounded by Shrines. That looks into our culture and says, I cannot stand the idolatry when I visited America. You know, when we read the commandment forbidding graven images, we so often think that that command does not apply to us. Because we don't have little statues in our house that we bow down and worship to. But this woman in a foreign culture, surrounded by animal sacrifice, is able to look into our culture and say, I cannot stomach The idolatry. You know, it is always easier to see the idolatry of another country, isn't it? As a matter of fact, it's always easier to see the idolatry in another person than it is to see in ourselves. And yet today we are reminded that idolatry is a temptation and a sin in all of our hearts. And God addresses it through the second commandment. And so there are three things I want to draw our attention to in the second commandment, verses 4 through 6. The first is the prohibitions of the second commandment. What does it command us not to do? The second is the penalty of the second commandment. If we violate the second commandment, what are the consequences? And thirdly, the promise of the second commandment. If we are faithful to keep it, faithful to pursue it, what is the blessing that comes with it? So first, let's look at the prohibition of the second commandment. And we'll spend most of our time on this first main point. Look at verse four with me. The Lord God says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. In this commandment, The Lord prohibits the use of idols both as objects of our worship. And we're going to talk about this both as objects of our worship, but also mediators of our worship. And so let's look at the first one. The second commandment prohibits idols as the objects of our worship. Israel had just left Egypt. And in Egypt, there were many gods of many creatures. In fact, it's been said that each of the plagues was to, was to triumph over one of the gods of Egypt, whether it be gnats or flies or locusts or frogs or livestock or firstborn, whatever it might be, that in all of those, God was triumphing over one of the gods of Egypt. And all of these gods were put in image form. They were they're graven images in which people bowed down to and worshiped. Now, Israel had been there for 400 years, so this is the pattern of worship that they saw. And they continued it when, in the Exodus. If you look just a couple chapters later in Exodus 32, we see that Moses goes up the mountain to talk with God. And they create a golden calf, and it says that they worshipped it, and they sacrificed to it. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. In the second commandment, God refuses not only to be reduced to a statue, but to be replaced by any part of his creation, whether that be birds in the sky, people of the earth, or animals of the sea. And so God gives this command in Exodus 20. And then throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see Israel time and again Breaking this command, turning to idols, turning to idols to worship them in place of the Lord. Several hundred years later, the prophet Isaiah addresses the foolishness of idol worship in one of the most classical writings in the history of the world. In Isaiah 44, he says this. He says, the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. What Isaiah is describing is the silliness of creating, of worshiping God that you have created instead of worshiping God that has created you. He goes on and says, He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it, he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire and the rest of it, the wood or whatever it might be. He makes into a God, his idol and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. You know, we may look at this passage and think we have gotten beyond that. That is such a primitive thing for people to create these little idols and worship them. But it is a pattern that is in all of our hearts. A desire to worship something that is tangible, touchable, seeable. In Romans 1, we read that we exchange the truth about God for a lie. And we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. You know, it's interesting. Less than 10 miles from my house. In Champion, Wisconsin, there is a shrine, and it is designated the first holy site in the USA, and I think maybe the only holy site in the USA, dedicated by the Vatican. And I actually have some pictures here that I pulled up this week. Did this cut off? Am I good? You can see here in 2011 when it was dedicated, this holy place, you can see the mass of people heading out to the shrine, and you can see them bowing down to worship and pray to Mary. And the irony of this, according to Isaiah, is that they take this mix of concrete, right? And out of half of that concrete, you create for yourself a graven image. And out of the other half, you patch your driveway. And the question is, which one are you supposed to worship? Or you take porcelain, a batch of porcelain. I don't know how porcelain works. But you take half of that batch of porcelain and you create a graven image. You create a God to worship. And with the other half, you create your kitchen sink. And so he's showing how silly a it is to create these graven images and to worship the things that you have made instead of worshiping the God who has made you. Now, my goal, just to be clear, is not to beat up on Catholics. I know many Catholic brothers and sisters that love the Lord who I will be worshiping with in heaven. But I do think this is a grave error in the church to worship graven images in place Of the one true God. And we can't judge those in the Catholic Church because we too are guilty of worshiping created images. Maybe not graven images like this, but images of God in our heart or things that we set up as a God in our heart, an idol in our heart. You know, each of these commandments are not just to be obeyed externally, but also deep down in our heart. You know it's so interesting. The book of First John ends with John warning Christians. Christians, he says, little children, keep yourself from idols. Every person, you included, your family included, your co-workers and friends included, every person was created to worship. As a matter of fact, we cannot not worship. We worship every second of every day. And so the question isn't if you will worship or not worship. The question is who or what will you worship every second of every day? And many times, if we are honest, it is not the Lord that we are worshiping or delighting in. But it is idols. And idols are things that we take, good things often that we take, and we make into ultimate things. Let me give you an example. Football. I know that's often my example, but it's near and dear to my heart. Football is a good gift from God. But it has been said, I think rightfully so, that the largest church in Wisconsin only meets eight times a year, and it's down at Lambeau Field. You know, people reject the worship of the living God to go and worship their idol. And when their idol is threatened, when the Packers lose to the Seahawks and the Playoffs, people get angry. The family has to evacuate the house or else something bad is going to happen. That might be a warning that this is an idol in your heart. And maybe God is calling you to stop watching the Packers. Now, if that makes you very angry and very scared, it's because you're idol. I know several men that I love and care about deeply. And I'll say, do you see the Packers game? And they'll say, no, it was an idol. I just got too enraged and too int- it was too intense for me. It had mastery over my heart. And so I couldn't watch it anymore. That is a strong person to say, I'm going to set this idol aside. See, it was a good thing that became an ultimate thing. Something that controlled their heart and their life and their joy. And they decided to put it away. Now, football is one thing. But really, any good gift can become an idol. Any good gift from God can become an idol. Our hearts are idol factories. Family is such a good gift from God, but we can make it an ultimate thing. And our whole life is contingent on how our family is doing. Or romance, we want someone to marry, but we compromise what God says on who we should date and who we should marry because we want them, we want love, we want marriage more than we want to obey and love and serve the Lord. And so my question for you is, what is the idol you are tempted to run to, to worship? Maybe it's a graven image. Maybe it's just something in your own heart where you go to and say, Ah, this is my Savior. This is my delight. This is relief for my soul. Because whatever takes first place takes God's place. And it's an idol. And it's a violation of the second commandment. And so the second commandment prohibits idols as objects of worship, but it it also prohibits idols as mediators of worship. Now, I know that's a bit confusing, but I think this is actually the stronger thrust of the second commandment. Let me give you an example. In Second Kings, Jehu becomes king of Israel, and he does something very good. He destroys all of the idols of Baal. He, he, he tears them down. He destroys them. All a very, very good thing. But he stopped short of destroying some golden calves that were at Bethel and at Dan. And the reason why he didn't destroy them was because those golden calves were not meant to, to represent a foreign god, but they were meant to represent the Lord God. As a matter of fact, most commentators agree that the golden calf created later in Exodus was not to be a foreign God, but it was a mediator to the one true God, a mediator that was tangible, visible, touchable, that they could look at and pray to as they were going towards the Lord God. And so the problem isn't that they were worshiping those golden calves as gods, but they were using them as mediators to the true God. You see, God doesn't only prohibit the worship of images, but he prohibits the use of images to worship the true God. Again, this is commonplace in our culture in Northeast Wisconsin. Many times people pray or look to different things, believing that they are mediators. In other words, they have power, they're efficacious to grant us our needs and desires and wants. I was reading on a website this week. And it says this, it says, according to tradition, if you really want to sell your home quickly, you should bury a statue of St. Joseph upside down in your yard, in the yard of your home. Praying to St. Joseph for a quick sale and burying a statue of him has always proved to be amongst the fastest ways to sell your houses. And then it goes on and says this, and it's just honestly very comical. It says, but make sure that you bury the statue of St. Joseph in the right spot. If you don't bear the statue in the right spot, then you might end up helping the neighbors across the street sell their house before yours. Or you might end up helping a person on the street behind you sell a home. Where you put the statue of St. Joseph can make a big difference on how quickly your home sells. You see, this is an instance of where we go to a mediator, trusting in this mediator to provide for us the things that we need instead of going directly to our to to God himself. You know, there is a whole list of examples of this. If you want a child, pray to St. Anna. If you want to be delivered from death, pray to St. Barbara. If you want to help in your studies, pray to St. Basil. If you want safety in your travel, on a boat, pray to St. Nicholas. If you're on a bus, pray to St. John. And there are all of these things that people look to and pray to as mediators to God to get what they want in life. And we even do this in a non-religious way. We have lucky rabbit's foots, lucky hats, lucky suits, lucky football, lucky gloves, lucky umbrella, all of these lucky things. And we look to them to grant us grace, to grant us blessing in this life. And all of it is a violation of the second commandment because there is only one mediator between God and man, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 3.11 says, In Christ Jesus our Lord, we have boldness to access to to the Father with confidence through our faith in him. We must not turn to idols as objects of worship, nor nor shall we turn to mediators to answer our prayers, to access the Father. There is only one mediator, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I have to go on a tangent here. Very quickly, because if you look to my left, your right, you will notice there is a cross. And the question is, isn't that a graven image? It's in the context of a worship service. Isn't this what the second command is prohibiting? And I don't think it is, and I'll explain why. Later in the same book of Exodus, God gives instructions in creating the tabernacle, the place where people gather to worship God. And it says this in Exodus 31. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stone for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. You see, God gave these men the Holy Spirit, that they might craft artwork for the temple, for the place of worship, including cherubim that sat on the mercy seat, these winged animals from heaven. But here is the difference, and this is the critical difference, is that these were not objects of worship, nor were they mediators of worship, but they were reminders of the glory of the one that we do worship. When we gather here and we see the cross, we must not bow down to the cross. We must not worship the cross. We must not pray to the cross. But the cross is a reminder of the greatness of our God and his love for sinners like you and me. And so it is here, not as an instrument of worship or as an object of worship, but a reminder of the greatness of the one that we do worship. You know, there is a similar thing in the Catholic Church since I've been a little bit hard or talked about, I want to give a little bit credit In the Catholic church, you will see these things that are the stages of the cross and they aren't there to be worshiped or as instruments of worship, but they are there to tell the story of the one that we do worship to those that are illiterate, to little children, to those who couldn't read not to be worshipped, but to point to the one that we do worship. And so I think, The second commandment certainly prohibits us from worshiping images as God or using images to worship God. But they are helpful when they point us to the God that we worship. So that is the prohibition of the second commandment. Next, it moves on to show us the penalty of the second commandment. Look in verse 5 with me. God says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, talking about idols. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God's jealousy is God's motivation for the second commandment, actually, for the first four commandments. His jealousy is his motivation for the penalty for disobedience to the second commandment. The Lord's jealousy is a good thing. It means that he is not indifferent towards his people. It means that God is righteous and holy and possessive of those that belong to him. J.I. Packer puts it this way. He says, God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite as human jealousy so often is, but appears instead as a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. What is that thing that God is jealous for? What is that thing that is supremely precious to God? It's you. It's me. It's his bride. It's his church. We are that precious thing. That he is not jealous of, but that he is jealous for. He desires our affection just as a husband desires the affections of his wife exclusively. Or a wife exclusively desires the affections of her husband. This is a godly jealousy. And God is jealous for you. He loves you and delights in you. You see, the Exodus story, and really the whole story of the Bible, is primarily the story of a loving righteous, jealous father who will stop at absolutely nothing to rescue his children, to care for his children, and to guard the relationship between him and his children. And so God's jealousy is his motivation for this commandment. And so we see the penalty. It goes on. He says, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. This is a warning to fathers and to mothers that the sins we allow in our life, the idols that we entertain in our life, the idols that we do not put to death, we pass on to our children. And the consequences that we suffer are consequences that they will suffer as well. The God we worship will be the God they worship. Maybe you'll pass on the idol of business success or academic success or social success. Or maybe the idol of alcohol or sports or music. Your idolatry is not indifferent towards God. And this verse, he actually calls it hatred towards him. And so as a father worships these gods, he passes it on to his children. But the good news is is that generational sin can be broken. In Deuteronomy twenty four sixteen, it says, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. You see, generational idolatry can be, re, can be uh, repented of. When those turn to Christ, it can be broken. And that's why it's so important for us to live with a love for God's law, that we will not pass the idols down to our children but will free them to worship the true God. Let me give you an illustration. I have a friend. We'll call him Joe. Joe, Joe's father was a Christian growing up, but idolized business success. He did all he could to make his business grow and be profitable and be fruitful, even at the sacrifice of his own family. When Joe grew up, he started his own business and his own business started to go very well. And his father would constantly talk to him about business and how it was going. And that was all that they talked about because this was their idol. It was an idol that he passed on to his son. But through the mercy and grace of God, my friend Joe realized that this was not helpful for him. It wasn't helpful for his father and it certainly wasn't helpful for his children. And so he repented to God for this idolatry. And he broke the generational sin, vowing not to pass it on to his own children. And what is more is I got to see Joe's own father repent of that idol himself and say, I know this was an idol in my life and it was wrong and I am sorry. And Lord, forgive me, Joe, forgive me. It is so important, not just for you, but for your children and your children's children and your children's children's children that you deal with the idols of your heart, now, that you don't pass this on to future generations. And so the penalty of the second commandment is the natural outcome of our idolatry. The Lord is jealous for us. He loves us and he desires our soul worship to him alone. So we've looked at the prohibition of the second commandment and the penalty of the second commandment. Finally, let's look at the promise of the second commandment. Verse six, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Notice the contrast between the punishment and the promise. And the punishment, he says that he will punish to the third and fourth generation, but the promise is he will pour out his love upon thousands of those who love him and obey his commandments. The promise is far greater than, than the penalty for this sin. This shows us the heart of God, the longing of God to pour out his love and grace and mercy on thousands upon thousands of generations of people. This promise is of God's covenant love. And it's not to perfect people because none of us are perfect, but are people that whose lives are characterized by a love for God alone, a people who are constantly recognizing the idols of their heart and putting them to death, seeking to put them to death. That is those for those who love God today which leads them to obedience today. You know, I've met with people, and one of the questions I like to ask new people and they're often caught off guard is i will ask them would you consider yourself a christian and i think almost every time not every time but almost every time people say yes i'm a christian and i'll say well how do you know and they'll say well 20 years ago i was baptized or 20 years ago i walked the aisle or 20 years ago i prayed a prayer that's great but god never points to the past to assure us of our salvation He points us to the present. He says, how do you know if you love me? If you obey my commands today, not if you obeyed them 20 years ago. I mean, it would be like this. Imagine a wife on her 20th anniversary said to her husband, do you love me? And she asked him that question because for 18 years, he's really been distant from her. And he responds to her saying, of course, I love you. I married you 20 years ago. Is that a good response, ladies? (laughs) Of course not. Did he walk the aisle? Yep. Probably even prayed a little prayer with her. But he never loved her. Maybe he loved the emotion. Maybe he loved love. Maybe he loved the thought of marriage. Maybe he just thought it was something that he had to have. But going forward from there, there is no evidence of his love for his wife. Maybe you're here today and you say, I'm a Christian because... 15 years ago or 20 years ago, I prayed this prayer, did this thing. But is there evidence today? Is God transforming your heart? You know, one of the awesome things about this commandment is that we are not called to worship images. But we were made in the image of God. And we were made to become more and more like into the image of Jesus Christ. who is the exact image of the invisible God. And so we were created to be transformed into the image of God more and more as we were created to be. Is that happening in your life? I'm not talking about day to day because many times you can't see that fruit. But as Chad had mentioned, when you think of singing those songs a long time ago to now, has God grown you in your affection for him in your love for him and your obedience to him? Because he says very clearly in this commandment that he shows steadfast love, not to everyone, but to those who love me. And keep my commandments. This is a warning to those who would call themselves Christians, but do not prioritize God at all in their time or their passion or their finances or in any way. God's love is for those who have known the love of God and are being transformed by the love of God. And so that is the promise of this commandment. So in studying the second commandment, we've seen three things. First, in verse 4, what the the second commandment prohibits, which is having idols as objects of worship and mediators of worship. In verse 5, we see the Lord punishes those who continue in their idolatry. And in verse 6, we see that the Lord delights to pour out his love and grace on those who forsake idols and love the Lord. All of these are very important things for us to understand idolatry. But there is still one massive question that remains unanswered that I think we have to address in this conclusion. And the question is this. How do we destroy idols? We know that they are bad. We know that they bring judgment. We know they bring destruction. And we know that it's good not to have them. But idols have a tight grip on our hearts, don't they? And and on our neighbor's hearts and on our friend's heart, how do we purge idolatry from those that we love? But also how do we purge idolatry from our own heart? And really the answer is consistent throughout Scripture on how we purge the idols of our heart. And there are many places that we could go, but I want to look at Acts chapter 17. And I'll try to shorten this a little bit, but it's very telling on how we are to purge the idols of our hearts. In Acts 17 verse 16, we read, Now, while Paul was waiting for them, he's waiting for Timothy and Silas. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so what does Paul do? Does Paul take a baseball bat and start clubbing all the idols? How does he get rid of the idols? It continues. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Skip down to verse 22, if you're reading along, and we're going to see Paul's tactic in his argument, and his discussion to dethrone idols. It says this, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopolis, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He's complimenting them. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Do you see what Paul is doing? Paul is telling them he's not going around and he's not, he's not shaming them for their idolatry, what he's doing is he's actually comparing their God to his God. This is really the solution to idolatry. The solution is to dare to compare, to compare their God with the true God, to dare to compare the idols of your heart with the true God. And so he goes on and he tells them that the Lord is greater because he created the world, that he sustains it, that he's given men breath and life. And as it continues, he talks about how he is sovereign over all things and how he has made us his children. And then in verse 29, it says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. And then he goes on. And at the end of it, it tells us that many thought that he was a fool, that many dismissed his argument. But some trusted in Christ as their Savior. The way we purge idolatry from our heart is by comparing the facts, by comparing the gods, and seeing which one is greater. Let me end with this illustration. When I was little, I used to have to trim grass along my house with those hand clippers. Any of you remember those? They're like large scissors. Usually they're rusty, didn't work very good. And you were on your knees for hours trimming around the house. And you'd be there with two hands and it was painful and it was arduous. It was, it was awful. Well, when I got to high school, I was introduced to a gas power trimmer, which was pretty awesome. I mean, it wasn't perfect. You still had to get the right fuel mixture and you would almost throw out your shoulder every time you try to start it 50 times and you'd have to bang it on the ground to get the string out. And sometimes you have to take a bar and take the string out yourself. And, but it was much more efficient, much quicker. It was even a little bit fun to trim the grass. And so never again would I go back to those hand clippers. It would be ridiculous to do so. Well, then last year I was introduced to a battery operated trimmer. I was skeptical. I thought, what can this thing do? But someone said it was great. And so I bought it. And this thing is wonderful. It is the trimmer I've always hoped for and dreamed of. It is light. It is efficient. The batteries last forever. I mean, one of the greatest things is it's so easy to use that my kids can use it, which is like one of the biggest benefits. And the coolest thing is the string, you know, that you have to bang on the grass and create those circles to it, it does it itself. It reads how long the string is and it, it spins it out so that you have enough string to trim along your house. And here's the point is that when I compare the gas weed whacker to the hand one, it paled in comparison. And when I got to the lecture one, it, it was far greater than the gas weed whacker. When you compare our God to the idol of your heart, When you compare our God to the graven images in your neighbor's yard, when you compare our God to any other thing that claims dominion on people's life, he wins all the time. He is far superior. You don't need to go around and you don't need to go around and shame people. All you simply need to do is tell them how great your God is. When you are tempted to idolatry, if you know what that is, it's good. It's good that you know what that is, that you can attack it. When you're tempted to idolatry, ask yourself these questions. Did this God love me so much that he sent his son to die for me? No. Did this God give me life and breath and joy? No. Does this God care for me and sustain me? Is this God jealous for me to be with me for all eternity? No. You see, the way that we purge idols from our heart is we compare. We look at the truth. We look at reality and we're reminded that our God is far greater than any other God. Let's pray. Lord, we come this morning confessing that we do entertain idols in our hearts. We do chase after other things, Lord. And I pray that when we come to that point where the idol is right in front of us, where we are tempted to dive in, to devour, to enjoy and to worship it, that we would compare you to this God, that we would know the greatness and glory and grace and love that you have shown to us through your son, Jesus Christ. And that it would purge the idols from our heart, that we might be free and that our children might be free and our grandchildren might be free for your glory and for our good. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.